Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to take a look at the legal system in the United States, but also take it internationally because what happens internationally does impact us to some degree. My guest today is an expert on this topic. Judge Thomas McCausher is a Connecticut complex litigation judge and former lawyer, legislator, and lobbyist. He is the author of The Common Flaw, Needless Complexity on the Courts, and 50 Ways to Reduce It. Judge, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate you being with me today. Your your title sounds like a great primer on how we can reduce a lot of the the clogging, if you will, of the of some of the courts. Let's just start off with a basic question: Why did you write this book? What was your main purpose in doing that? Well, I've had about uh, forty years in the court system, thirty years in the federal courts, ten years on the state bench, and I ended up feeling like somebody had to do it because uh, our system uh, absolutely depends on the rule of law and the rule of law depends on public faith in the rule of law. And I see that faith has been uh, diminishing uh, because we've, we've had this trend ever toward more expensive and less satisfying lawsuits. So I thought, uh, you know, we had to end the trends that uh, we're following that are really undermining uh, faith in our institutions. And and so that's that's why I wrote that's what I wrote the book. And, and my aim is to try to to build faith ultimately in our system. Mm -hmm. That those are two very good points. Uh, how many of these trials are lasting longer and costing more? What recommendations would you make to help reduce that to some degree to make it more manageable from the time management and also from the financial standpoint? Well, I've got fifty ideas. I'll just uh, I'll hit a couple okay. Pick, for you. pick some of the major ones. <laughs> yeah, the major good. ones are you know it starts with where the lawsuit starts. It's a document called the complaint. They get ever longer, ever more complex when they're usually stating fairly simple problems of why uh, some human value that's been enshrined in law has been violated. And things that could take, you know, four or five pages are often taking a hundred in just filing the lawsuit. Uh, also, I think that uh, there have to be fewer motions. People are constantly challenging in court these days. Every aspect of the lawsuit without ever addressing what the lawsuit is about. And by that, I mean, did you file it in the right court? Did you file it too soon? Did you file it too right, too late? Are you the right person to bring the lawsuit? Is there a better court that could hear this? Did you use the right magic words in filing the complaint? All these things are often brought up in multiple different motions, challenging the court's jurisdiction, trying to throw the complaint out, and that eats up years. So ending that process and starting with a simply one single procedural motion would be uh, another thing that I think is critical. Above all, frankly, controlling the evidence gathering process would be the biggest thing that we could save time with. And that's 
the process we call discovery. Most of the money of the party gets eaten up with these battles over documents and things. If judges controlled them, that wouldn't happen. Beyond that, streamlined trials, prompt decisions, and decisions we can understand and read ourselves are, are key things. Mm -hmm. Have you sent copies of your book to all the law schools in the country? <laughs> Sounds like this is something they should incorporate, these ideas. It's out for publication on the 25th of September. Right. Uh, once, I, once it's really in print and I have lots of copies of it, that's exactly <laughs> what I plan to do. I've sent out some limited copies uh, already to some key people, but uh, I'll have a lot more of them. And I, I do. I want to you know, get that word out there and uh, spark a dialogue. Though. Exactly right. It seems like your book promotes more of a humanistic approach and a public trust approach to the legal system and sort of defines the legal system as, as something that's grown and grown and grown as sort of a gargantuan, I'm not going to say monster, but one that's uh, more bureaucratic. Let's put it like that. Well, that's, is that, that's is a that correct summary. Oh, it is, because that's that's the point is about what I was saying is that all those things I listed as problems, challenging where the case was brought, challenging the words it used, et cetera, is all about the lawsuit itself. And my argument is that a humanist approach to a lawsuit would be all about two things. One, the human values enshrined in law, and two, the humans involved in the lawsuit and its implications for them. And lawsuits today are cases about a case instead of cases about a human value, a human conflict. And that's what I'm aiming at. That's extremely important and very it's very logical, to be quite honest, most assuredly. You know, you're talking about our faith in the in the court system, and it 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 seems well for many reasons. There there have been attacks on the court system, especially the U.S. Supreme Court. Of course, that's the top court in the United States. And what can be done to restore the credibility of the U.S. Supreme Court? What, what do you see as some of the challenges there at this point in time? Well, I think the biggest challenge for that institution, like all of our institutions, is people aren't willing to trust it on blind faith anymore. Uh, a trust in this country today, I think, has to be earned, uh, and it isn't easy to get. I think the reality is, and this is just a fascinating part of it to me, is that our institutions are far more ethical and far more honest than they've ever been in the history of the country, and yet they are trusted less. Less people need constant proof that our institutions are performing, and and uh, uh, the Supreme Court, I think, can remedy that by promptly adopting a code of ethics. I think they they certainly need one, uh, and they should have one, and make sure it's public, uh, and make sure uh, the information gets out to people as to that the fact that they're complying with it, and it will help them. And they can also start to write their opinions in ways uh, that people can understand and read themselves, which is a major theme of my humanizing things. A lot of their opinions are real formalist opinions. You can't understand what they're saying, in short. And uh, a, with a humanist approach to it, it would be intended that the public could read it and be reassured by it. So I think they should do that, too. Mm -hmm. Can, can judges do that in the courtroom? I've, I'm not a legal scholar, far from it, but can a judge give direction to the plaintiff and the defendant or whatever the case might be uh, to actually write in plain English or 
to incorporate some of the changes that you've been making? Well, a lot of it is training, and judges judges supervise lawyers. In the end, uh, many judges are all hands off on being involved with lawyers and about doing something which I think judges and a legal system can do, which is to teach, teach good practices. And judges can do it by modeling it with the orders that they write, with the decisions that they write, and they can set page limitations, lay out specific things that they want lawyers to cover in their briefs, and ask them to to do it in language that uh, can be understood. I, I do it all the time. I'm often, if there's suggestions, I mean, lawyers have to make their their own choices how to present their cases, but I make suggestions all the time. Exactly, yes. Well, this, this is a real, it's a constitutional crisis we're undergoing right now for several reasons, but the one with the Supreme Court is certainly paramount, I, in my opinion, anyway. What role do you think Congress could play? I know that the Congress has made changes to the Supreme Court over the last several decades. So what role could they play to make sure that they do incorporate a code of ethics, a judicial code of ethics, which as I understand it, all the judges in every court in the in the United States has one except the Supreme Court. Well, that's why they need to get one right away. <laughs> they don't want to have a clash with Congress over the separation of powers. The, the judiciary being independent of Congress is very important in terms of its day-to-day -day functions. Congress uh, could assert itself more more vigorously over the courts, but I think in some ways we'd lose out if they if if we ended up with a uh, uh, a, a primacy of the legislative over the judiciary. They should be separate and equal powers, and along with the executive branch, have some areas in which this is their primary jurisdiction. And that's that's why they need to, to act before Congress forces. Exactly. It's a very good point. And this may be the motivation for Chief Justice John Roberts to get a very equitable code of ethics immediately. And they could do it. They could do it very easily. It, it's very not that difficult. It's not like reinventing the atomic bomb or something. You know, you can do it fairly well, quickly. Have them. They can just take a look and adopt one. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, that, that brings to mind uh, adopting other pieces of legal information. I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, I mentioned about international legal machinery. And when I think of international legal machinery, I think of uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights drafted in 1948 by the UN General Assembly and shepherded through by Eleanor Roosevelt, the former first lady of the United States. The International Criminal Court located in The Hague, which was created by the UN, but is not under the UN uh, tutelage right now, I guess you could say. And the International Court of Justice, which is the sixth organ of the United Nations. How does do all of these these three legal entities tie into what you're doing? I know they don't directly affect, well, I'm not gonna say that. How, how do they tie into your legal operations? Well, they do because, because it's about the rule of law. And I think that uh, respect for the rule of law, the idea that we have uh, a country of laws, not men, is the way it was originally expressed, and a, a world of laws and not people is a vital thing to keeping a country stable. We've seen challenges to that in our country where some people have tried to put themselves above the law. We see it in Russia. We see it in China. Uh, Russia, in particular, has shown that a country that 
doesn't have respect for the rule of law, endangers itself. A world without institutions that show respect for the rule of law endangers itself. Because then it becomes back to what we were trying to get away from when we adopted uh, the United Nations as a, as a mechanism for dealing with disputes, and that's war. Uh, if, if, if the only resource that you have to turn to to resolve disputes is violence, then we have the world creeping backwards. And I think that there was a great deal of hope when the uh, United Nations was formed and this Universal Rights Declaration was passed, that there'd be a hope that uh, we'd resolve our disputes by a rule of law and not simply by by force. And even though it's more difficult today with all, especially because of primarily misinformation, uh, various denied well, denials that take place about different aspects that are being treated at the UN. But the UN is actually much more important today than it was in 1945. And it was extremely important at the end of World War II as we came out of the ashes of, of World War II. But it makes it more difficult. What role do you see for the media as far as trying to help us better understand these issues and to get away from some of this nonsensical? conspiracy theoretical stuff that really is not factual. It just simply is not factual. But what role does the media play to help us better understand these issues? Well, that's a tough one because uh, the media is, is governed by money and money uh, loves sensation and, uh, and anxiety. And so it pushes it. But they could at least start by not mocking international institutions quite so much. The United Nations comes in for some pretty hard knocks from the uh, from the American media, but it was an American idea. And so it was an American idea that people around the world have had more enthusiasm for than Americans. So the media could spend some more time helping uh, by showing the good work that the United Nations and our other international bodies are doing. Uh, and at least uh, if they won't showcase them, they can stop denigrating them because they're weakening uh, public faith in uh, in peace is what it boils down to. And I don't think anybody can, uh, that's not a good long-term business model for anyone to to uh, destroy the institutions that they cover. You're absolutely right about that. The UN has many successes. It has some setbacks, no doubt about it. It's not a perfect organization, but it has had so many setbacks and it has worked really on behalf of the majority of the countries, 193 countries at the UN, but especially for the United States, we have benefited more from UN programs, UN agencies over the years. And even today, when you look at that whole family of UN uh, agencies that are out there, but you're absolutely correct on that. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our shows, and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at a very interesting book that's just 
hit the press, so to speak, and it's on the legal system in the United States, and it probably could be utilized in many other countries of the world. My guest is an expert on this topic. Judge Thomas Mukhauser is a Connecticut complex litigation judge and former lawyer, legislator, and lobbyist. His most recent book is The Common Flaw, Needless Complexity in the Courts, and 50 Ways to Reduce It. Judge, we're talking about this very interesting book. I, well, first of all, I don't want to get off the UN international machinery. Uh, do you do you have any other comments about that, how we really need to focus on the rule of law? And this is true in this country and worldwide, and there has certainly been a denigration of that. But uh, do you have a closing comment on that before I move on? It's about, it's about humanity on all levels, and that's what uh, my book, The Common Flaw, is about, and that's what our institutions are supposed to be, our international institutions are supposed to be uh, focusing on human potential uh, and building it and defending it. And that's really what I like to think my book's attempting to do here in the United States. But you're right, it also has, it, it could also help in uh, in systems uh, all around the world in terms of trying the, the truth-finding process that is the legal system in, in most countries, at least in theory. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We need to do that for sure. Well, there are so many <clears throat> other elements out there. We have we have so many movies that are out there with, uh, that uh, have uh, judicial overtones where juries are making decisions and that type of thing. Uh, what role do you see for the the movie industry, the cultural aspect of our society to help us have a better understanding of the legal system? and to promote some of the ideas that you're talking about, really. Well, the movies, I think, do it better than the courtrooms sometimes. And people, <laughs> really? lawyers will watch a movie and say, well, that's not what it's like, but it could be. And that, and that means, uh -huh. in other words, that it could be interesting what goes on in court if we focus on the human values being applied to a human conflict. I mentioned a, a few good men in my book, uh, The Common Flaw, and uh, as an illustration of good cross-examination. The usual cross-examination of witnesses and the offering of documents in courts is, is again, belabored by technicalities and formalism instead of going for the jugular of truth, which you often see in movies. And A uh, Few Good Men is a great example of that. The Jack Nicholson standoff with Tom Cruise is magnificent, but there are many other movies that just show you actually how you could brush aside the stuff we get tangled up with and deal with a real human conflict. Uh, and uh, uh, Witness for the Prosecution is a great uh, British movie on, on the subject. There was a remake not too long ago. Uh, and you know there are many other American movies uh, of the same type. Anatomy of a Murder with Jimmy Stewart, one of these great. But you can see real drama. And I think we've been choking the the life out of cases in our own courts and I, I i with the common flaw i'm trying to breathe a little life back into it that's why i do use movies and i have a series of cartoons that illustrate the points i'm trying to make too well i have a copy of the book and i'm looking forward to getting into it immediately <laughs> i really am i unfortunately haven't had a chance to do well i have started it but i haven't gotten well into it i the we talked about the supreme court and how the credibility of the Supreme Court is collapsing, to be quite honest, because of some of the alleged charges against some of the justices, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, Justice Alito, and some of the others. 
But we also have a situation, a constitutional crisis with the January 6th insurrection to overthrow a free and fair election and to install the, a person who was not elected president of the United States back in uh, 2020. What, how would your book tie into this? Do you have any just general observations on that situation? Or how would your book tie into where we are? There, there are four indictments right now going on uh, with uh, against uh, former President Donald Trump. But how would that come together? Well, the, the ideas in the common flow would be aimed at uh, seeing that we're not where we are right now, which is litigating the last election while we're facing the next election coming right at us. In short, these issues should have been wrapped up a couple of years ago. And if the courts uh, function more efficiently, if the judicial system, the justice system functions more efficiently, this could be behind us. Now, I will say that there were those 32 lawsuits that were filed during the election uh, itself in its immediate aftermath, and the judiciary should be credited with having dealt with them swiftly enough to, to try to uh, get it behind us. But had, had the Supreme Court uh, made itself present uh, during that process and, and and had taken decisive action, we probably wouldn't have had January 6th happen either because the Supreme Court of the United States would have brought finality to those challenges. And I, I know that they were, it's once bitten, twice shy, and they don't want another Bush versus Gore, but, you know, you don't, uh, you don't wait uh, till it's too late just because maybe once before you acted too soon. And I think the court could have played a better role, but more important, uh, an efficient judicial system could have had this all wrapped up by now and, and should attempt to wrap it up uh, as soon as possible. And there have, there have been just a whole series of delays, one delay after another, uh, challenging this, challenging that. And it really is not, uh, expedient to move these cases forward, but uh, are we not required in this country to provide a timely trial for the participants and for the general public too? Well, legally speaking, it's a question of due process, and the ultimate uh, measure of due process is a timely and fair hearing. And so, mm -hmm. it, you know, if justice delayed is justice denied in many cases, and. Um, that's that's happening all the time in the courts is what happens is that the case takes so long to get decided that the problem it was addressing is already behind us so far. And, and so that's, I think that's the thing we need to fix. And I think that judges need to deal with preliminary challenges faster because that's how you tie a case up into knots. You challenge this, you challenge that. All procedural and uh, function-oriented uh, challenges that prevent you from getting to trial. And so judges challenged by that in, in this particular time need to get those things addressed, get them addressed efficiently, maybe to address all the questions at once and then move in the jugular of the actual case. And so uh, it's gonna take some work and, and there are gonna be many attempts, I think, uh, in lots of the cases pending to try to hold things up. Mm -hmm. There certainly are. No, no doubt about that. That's for sure. Well, let me ask you in our closing minute or so, do you have any other suggestions you'd like to share with our viewers or any other insight into the legal system, either in the United States or someplace else in the world, perhaps? Well, I think the most important message I'm trying to get across in the common flaw is that we need to put humanity 
uh, first in what we do. And much of what we get trained in law school and in life is about process. It's about form over substance. And I think we need to understand and get in touch with the core human values that animate our legal system uh, and to apply those to real human problems and give an answer that people can have faith in and can also understand themselves. And so that that's the message I want to get across most in the common flaw in another chat today. And of course, so many of these issues, almost all of them, I would imagine, are covered in your book, The Common Flaw, Needless Complexity in the Courts and 50 Ways to Reduce It. And it's a, it's a really, it's a primer for law schools, for attorneys, for judges, for legal systems in this country. And, and again, I think worldwide, because we are actually undergoing some of the same problems that really have been going on overseas for many years. We're having them here in the United States, especially the weakening of the courts, uh, casting aspersions on the legality of the courts, their credibility, and that type of thing. But this is something that we really need to work on. But uh, Judge, Judge Thomas Muckhauser, I want to congratulate you on a very interesting book to start off with, and to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed being here. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.